Section 18 of The Life of Sir Walter Raleigh by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 10. Accession of James I. Part 2. James's private life was strictly moral, but he had not the strength of character to make his court moral. His one passion was for hunting, though he was a bad rider, and this led him to spend the greater part of the year in his country seat. His leisure time was spent either in hunting or in study, and in the midst of these occupations at one of his country seats, great questions of politics used to be discussed and settled. During the first part of his reign the government was left entirely in the hands of Cecil, who gained the king's complete confidence. Cecil met James at York on his way to London, and as no one knew of the intercourse which had existed between the two, every one was surprised to see the cordiality with which James greeted him. Men on all sides flocked to meet the new king, till the council thought it wise to forbid the general resort to him. Sir Walter Raleigh, as captain of the guard, went as far as Burley in Lincolnshire to meet James. He had always believed that the accession of James was the best thing that could happen for England. But he had not entered into any correspondence with James. He had tried to speak to Cecil about James's accession, but Cecil had refused him his confidence, telling him that he for one had no intention of looking forward to such an event as his mistress's death. Raleigh had no man at all his equal in position who shared his views, who could appreciate his genius, who would be willing to aid him in carrying out his great schemes. With the people he was extremely unpopular, on account of his haughty manners, the great nobles regarded him as an adventurer, his equals in birth amongst the courtiers feared him as a dangerous rival. He does not seem to have been a lovable man. He was reserved and proud, and did not open himself out to many. It was only some of those who had served under him and had gone through perils and difficulties with him who seemed to have learned what he really was and clung to him with true devotion. James was strongly prejudiced against him. Essex in his letters had done his utmost to prejudice the king's mind against his own opponents at court, and when Cecil undeceived James's mind about himself, he made no attempt to do so about Raleigh. It is difficult to understand what was exactly Cecil's attitude toward Raleigh. As long as Elizabeth lived, he seems to have wished to behave to him as a firm and confidential friend. It is probable that in those days he looked upon him as a useful foil to Essex, and that he did not wish needlessly to quarrel with anyone who stood high in the Queen's estimation. But there was no real cordiality toward Raleigh in his heart. Cecil, a cautious, industrious man of business, could not understand Raleigh's fiery nature. He could feel no sympathy with his far-reaching views and entirely failed to appreciate his genius. Raleigh's strength of character, his wide schemes, his grand ideas, seemed to him exaggerated. He thought him a dangerous character, as the small man often thinks a greater than himself to be. It was not difficult to make James look upon anyone with suspicion. Essex, whom he greatly admired, had told him that Raleigh was a dangerous character, who in heart was opposed to his succession. It is a melancholy thought that these futile suspicions could have put a stop to Raleigh's act of usefulness. Hardly past the prime of life, with full and mature experience, great knowledge, true patriotism, and a fertile mind ever devising new schemes for her advancement, 
it would be impossible to find a man who might be more useful to his king and country. But none of this brilliant promise was to bear fruit, and in reality Raleigh's active life ended with Elizabeth's death. At Burley, James received him coldly and greeted him with a stupid pun upon his name. By my soul, man, he said, I have heard but Raleigh of thee. Raleigh did not stay long. He needed royal letters to enable him to proceed to some affairs connected with the Duchy of Cornwall. James bade his secretary hasten the preparation of these letters, saying, Let them be delivered speedily, that Raleigh may be gone again. The secretary wrote to Cecil, saying, to my seeming, Raleigh hath taken no great root here. A fortnight afterwards, toward the end of May, Raleigh was summoned to attend the council chamber, and was told that it was the king's pleasure that he should resign his office as captain of the guard. The reason given was that the king wished one of his own countrymen, Sir Thomas Erskine, to fill this office of trust about his person. To make up for the loss of this post, a condition attached to Raleigh's patent as governor of Jersey, reserving three hundred pounds annually of his salary to the crown, was remitted. But the office of captain of the guard, though not profitable, was considered a post of great honor, and it gave its holder an important position at court. Raleigh was bitterly grieved at losing it, and attributed the loss to Cecil. He would not seize this opportunity of shaking himself free from court intrigue, but made a wild attempt to discredit Cecil in James I's eyes. He wrote the king a letter, in which he threw all the blame of Essex's death upon Cecil, and even went further back to lay the blame of the execution of Mary Queen of Scots upon Cecil, as well as his father. The authenticity of this letter has been considered doubtful, but the French ambassador Beaumont, in a dispatch written on May 2nd, says that Raleigh was in such a rage at being dismissed that he went to the king and protested that he would declare to him and show him in writing all the intrigues and the stories that Cecil had got up in his prejudice. This statement makes it very likely that Raleigh wrote the letter. But at all events it is certain that he gained nothing by doing so, and probably only excited Cecil's animosity against himself. Raleigh was not the kind of man whom James could have liked under any circumstances. He was too independent, energetic, and impetuous to suit the cautious king. He was as eager as ever for war with Spain, and hoped to make James share his views. At an interview which he had with him at Beddington Park, where James was the guest of Sir Nicholas Carew, Raleigh offered to raise two thousand men at his own expense and lead them to invade Spanish territory. This sort of talk was very distasteful to James. He had a profound dislike for war. He had won his crown peacefully and meant to hold it peacefully. It had no doubt been necessary for Elizabeth, whose legitimacy was doubtful, to make war to defend her throne. He, on the contrary, was a legitimate monarch, and his fondest desire was to be recognized as such by all powers, Protestant and Catholic alike. But there was a strong party in England who, like Raleigh, wished him to continue the war with Spain, and above all not to desert the cause of the Netherlands. Philip II, just before his death, had hoped to make the settlement of affairs in the Netherlands more easy by giving over his sovereignty there to his eldest daughter Isabella and her husband the Archduke Albert, a younger brother of the Emperor Rudolph II. But the Netherlanders were no more inclined to submit to the Archdukes 
as Isabella and her husband were called, than to the Spanish king himself, for the archdukes, supported by Spanish troops, were clearly only tools in the hands of Spain. Ambassadors from the different powers now hastened to the court of James to congratulate him on his accession, and to gain him, if possible, for their ally. First came an important embassy from the Dutch Republic. Among its members was the greatest statesman of the Republic, John of Oldenbarnefeldt. James answered their demands for alliance with commonplaces, and made no promises. Before the Dutch embassy had left London, a French ambassador, de Rony, arrived with a splendid suite of two hundred gentlemen. The special object, both of Barnefeld and de Rony, was to obtain such help from James as would prevent Ostend, which was then besieged by Spanish troops, from falling into the hands of Spain. De Rony wished to bring about a secure alliance between England and France. He proposed a double marriage between the two royal houses. The Dauphin was to marry James's only daughter Elizabeth, whilst Prince Henry, James's eldest son, was to marry Elizabeth, the eldest daughter of the King of France. James listened, but promised nothing. The children were still young, and he shrank from taking any step which would commit him to any decided course of action. All that could be got from him was a promise to allow the levy of soldiers in England and Scotland for the defence of Ostend. Cecil, as well as James, seemed to have been averse to war with Spain. He cordially disliked Spain, but as a statesman he saw great difficulties in the way of war. England was poor. Elizabeth had always been obliged to use the strictest economy so as to keep order in financial affairs. The revenue of the crown was decreasing, and it was clear that the country would not easily bear the burden of war. Financial matters were to be made still more difficult as time went on by the extravagance of James's court and the lavish way in which he spent money on his favourites. Under these circumstances, Raleigh's talk of war with Spain was very distasteful to James. But though he met with no favour from the king, Raleigh still stayed about the court, hoping doubtless that some way might appear for him again to take an active part in affairs. End of section 18.